Hello? Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. I love that intro music. Our audience knows <laughs> it was designed by our uh, engineer. Oh yeah. You know, it's pretty. Uh, Allison Dutch has these programs six times a year in New York for the press. And each year, I go, each time I go there, I find one or two very interesting people to bring on to this program. But in this case, I had a young boy tug at my uh, leg and say, you have to see our booth. So I went over there, and there was Rahini Shah um, managing the booth, trying to keep her young son, what is he, six or seven, uh, yes. under tow, six. Well, six, he was doing a good job old. of pulling us uh, newsmen around. and uh, <laughs> I've trained him well. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I went over there, and uh, she had a very unusual product, which she's going to talk about, and a very unusual approach to it. But as we ask every guest, Rahini, first tell us a little bit about yourself personally before we get anything anything else, and welcome to the program. Sure, Don. Thank you for having me. Um, so Blue Salt was, uh, was a business I created three years ago. And uh, the idea behind Blue Salt was to have a different take on luxury. I was a user of luxury products um, in my prior life as a management consultant. I had worked as a consultant for several years and had traveled a tremendous amount. And I always found luxury bags to have, I mean, they were beautiful. They were gorgeous, lovely to hold, but uh, having, you know, something lacking for a professional woman. And so in order to address that need, about three years ago, I decided uh, that I had to do it myself. So I got into the business of designing luxury handbags. Uh, I understand that. You did a great pitch for your your product, which we're going to uh, discuss, but tell <laughs> us, what were you doing as a management consultant and before that? So prior to uh, to management consulting, I actually had two MBAs, one from the Indian School of Business in finance and uh, marketing, and the second from Yale in economics and strategy. So basically, I had all the areas of business covered, um, but I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. <laughs> So I ended up in management consulting. I was a strategy and marketing consultant. So I traveled around, um, worked with businesses from small businesses all the way to large billion-dollar corporations, helping them figure out how to save money on operations, on uh, marketing spend. <clears throat> and uh, so that was, that was a great learning opportunity for me, um, to learn from other businesses, to understand what best practices are, to basically gain the confidence uh, that I would be able to, you know, eventually run a business one day myself. Well, you're running the business right now. Uh, yeah. First, what is the name of the business? Blue Salt. So blue stands for indigo, which was actually um, one of the major exports of the British Raj. And salt is for the salt tax that Mahatma Gandhi had used um, to galvanize the independence movement uh, of the Indian people. And for me, since I am of Indian heritage, it was a way for me to acknowledge that as well as to say that I'm creating a peaceful resistance to the way luxury is defined today with my business. That's very interesting. Uh, very few people call it the Raj. 
Um, <laughs> for our audience, will you explain what you mean by the Raj? So the British Raj was the name um, that the British gave their colonial rule um, of India. So they had ruled India for about 200 years between the 1700s and 1900s. Mahatma Gandhi was instrumental in helping the Indian people sort of see themselves as an independent people who did not need to be colonized. Um, and so he did that using the salt tax. So salt at that time was a product of India, uh, but the British levied a very heavy charge on it, um, tax charge. And since that was such a fundamental uh, product that you use every day, uh, it was very difficult for the average Indian to afford it. Um, and so that was, um, you know, that was the equivalent, I guess, of our tea, um, what's the, the American independence movement. Okay. So now let's get to your product. Three years sure. ago, you decided to jump off the cliff and start a small <laughs> business. It still feels like I'm jumping. <laughs> right. Um, so I, uh, I actually found traveling five days a week uh, was becoming detrimental to my personal life, and uh, I decided to stay home. Um, but I wasn't someone who wanted to give up working. I loved my work too much. I felt I had spent too much time training for it. Um, and so the best way for me to, you know, to have both those things in my life was to start my own business. And uh, several of the benefits that I saw for myself was the fact that I had been my own target audience. I had seen what women need um, in the marketplace and, you know, what they're not able to, to find with existing products. And so I felt that that was one way that I, I brought a unique take to, uh, to, the, to the marketplace. The second thing was I had excellent training, both academically as well as, uh, you know, having worked in, in consulting. And so I had the confidence of knowing that I could figure out a business problem and, you know, how to approach that. And third, and I think this was most important of all, I had a ridiculously supportive um, family and network of friends. And so be it, you know, the emotional panic moments where you go, what, what the heck am I doing with my life? What am I throwing away? Um, having someone to talk you back down um, to saying, you know, to having someone to, to bounce ideas off of, all of those things were done through my family and friends. So those three things gave me the confidence of getting started. So you get it started. But what are your products? So my products are, um, well, so initially what I'm starting with are women's accessories for the workplace. So be it uh, a weekender that you would use for travel or a work tote, um, something that would convert from a weekend tote to something that you could take to work, something that allows you to organize yourself in a very efficient way. Those are the primary products that Blue Salt produces. Now, why Blue Salt is different from every other luxury brand um, is because we bring the idea of thoughtfulness to our products. So every aspect of our business is built with the idea that not only do we serve our customers, but how do we also serve the people who help us make our products and society at large. So we do that through the ethos of mindful production, mindful consumption. And that's sort of the tag that I use to describe how we make every business decision. So all our, our materials for our bags, the primary materials are all um, sustainable. Um, we make sure that uh, all the factories that we use uh, adhere to rules about dignity and labor, so fair working conditions and fair um, you know, wages. We ensure that there's no uh, labor use, no child labor used, and we do that with in-person audits of these, uh, of these manufacturing facilities, which pretty much means me walking around <laughs> and making sure that I'm comfortable with the working conditions that, uh, that all these people have for themselves. And in terms of giving back to society, we ensure that 1% of every sale price goes back to a nonprofit in India that helps rural women develop skills that allow them to be self-reliant. So employable skills like sewing and embroidery, um, I felt like that sort of closed the loop with the idea of us being able to give back to someone else. So those are aspects of our business that I think make us different from everything else out there. 
And how do you communicate this idea to your customers? We, well, that's actually something that I'm trying to figure out um, as I go along. And at present, what I'm doing is I'm building out a much larger creative team. So now I have a creative team of four people who work with me. They're spread over London and uh, and Moscow, actually. So it makes for interesting Skype conversations. <laughs> but uh, they are helping me visually. They're, they're producing visual content and written content for social media um, to help explain different aspects of the business and what we're trying to do. We're reworking our website so that there'll be more video content that explains how the product is used as well as the benefits that it gives everybody. Um, and me, I mean, me going out there and, I guess, talking <laughs> at press events like the one I met you at, Don, as well as uh, I'm, I'm going to be going next month to speak to a women's entrepreneurship group here in Pittsburgh um, and tell them about what it is that we're trying to do. This is a movement. I don't think this is specific to my business alone. And the more I communicate it, I think the better for everyone. <laughs> and by the way, uh, uh, spell out your website for people. Sure. It's www. Dot blue salt that's b l u s a l t dot com okay so oftentimes uh, i get emails across from people who go to the site while i'm on the air but oh, no perfect but uh, what you haven't explained i think clearly to the audience you provide uh, tote bags and uh, a briefcase like items am i correct right Yes, yeah, so the the five products that we have that will be available for pre-order in October, one will be the Weekender. That's the biggest bag we have, and that's meant to be one for a weekend getaway. So it has enough space for you to carry, you know, several changes of clothes, um, a separate uh, zippered compartment for you to keep your shoes aside, um, and it still fits in a carry-on. Um, it, it fits the carry-on dimensions that you would need on a plane. The second large bag that we have is a weekend tote, and that works in tandem with the laptop sleeve. The laptop sleeve is where you would keep and organize everything with, uh, you know, related to work, from your laptop to documents and all the accessories that go with your computer. And that slips in and out of your, your work tote, um, and that also allows a lot of organization for other things. So as women... Should you choose to use your work tote as, say, a diaper bag on a weekend or just a grocery, you know, weekend bag, taking out the laptop sleeve allows you to convert your work tote to that. There are two smaller bags, uh, the Sharon Clutch and the Rama Wallet, and both of those are also very high in utility. Um, and they're all, all of these products are built for you to be able to use in terms of durability. So the external the bag, the, the external part of the bag, for example, is water and stain repellent. So you're able to wipe down your um, any of your bags without, you know, worrying about a cup of spilled coffee, for example. Um, those are those are the five bags we have, and they all work in modular way with each other. So they're designed to work together as a set. So you can customize how and what you carry. Keep going. Um, well, the other aspect of the bag is <laughs> is the fact that they're extremely versatile. So the, the each bag was designed to be able to use as a luxury bag, so something that you would, say, take out um, for an evening out. So all of them are designed to be very simple, understated, elegant, um, and yet they're, you know, rugged in the sense that you would be able to, you know, run in a rain shower and not worry about anything getting ruined. Um, they're also built for you um, in terms of um, safety. So the, the smaller wallets, which have credit card slots and are built for you to be able to hold up to 16 cards, all have RF blocking protection. So we have material in there that makes sure that your credit card information can't be stolen. So we tried to think through how and any woman would use her bag and all the numerous ways that women use their bags. And I don't think that there's many other brands that can claim to have spent that much time thinking through how women use their bags. We, I spend a lot of time talking to women with my prototypes, 
Um, I, I went off of my own experience. I talked to, you know, to industrial designers who've designed bags for high utility things like mountaineering to get best practices and incorporate those into my bags. So to be able to create a luxury bag like that, I think, uh, I think that was something that I was pretty proud to have accomplished. How do you intend to market your product? We are spending um, a lot more of our, our marketing budget now on social media. So Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, these are our primary tools. We're also building out a digital magazine so people can subscribe to our magazine online. And we will start talking to them about our bags, about you know different aspects, about how decisions are made in our business. So be it the nonprofit that we used, how did we come to decide on that particular nonprofit? If we've chosen our credit processing you know, company, how did we choose them? Why did we choose them as opposed to someone else? All of these things are driven by our decisions to try to give back as much as we can. Um, and so I think those are elements of how we would market our bags, but also talk to people about what makes our bags special. Well, what are your price points? Our smallest bag, the Rama w wallet, is 235 and our largest bag is 610 and that's the Weekender bag. And the idea is for us to be in the luxury space but be an affordable luxury product. So for any equivalent luxury product, we're actually priced at the lower end of the market, and that's, that's by design. The idea behind that is that we want you as a customer to find as much value as you can out of our bag. And that comes to financial, you know, to the financial aspect of it as well. So you need to be able to use our bag, not have to consume any other bag because our bag is just so fantastic and meets your needs, but you also have to feel it's worth it. And so that's why the price points were designed to be what they were. It's very interesting. It's often very difficult to get into the high-end side of things without a name sure. designer. Right. How are you? How are you going to differentiate yourself? I think it's going to take time. It's a. It's a bit of. Um, it's a bit of educating the market, obviously, because uh, one, I'm. I'm just completely new. No one knows my name, in a big way yet. But part of it is also the story we're telling, that. Luxury does not have to be defined by the big houses. And they've got great marketing budgets. They've got amazing products. But they're not the be-all and end-all. If you want to be thoughtful in how you consume, in how you give back to the world, and if you want those choices to be reflected in the products you use, then you would need to use a product like ours, like Blue Salts. Um, and so to that end, I think it's, it's a matter of word of mouth. So our first year, we only introduced two products. It was testing the market, seeing if, you know, people thought like I did or if I was just off in a crazy, you know, alternate universe. But people seem to have responded well. Um, the people who bought our bags were genuinely surprised. I've gotten numerous emails and notes saying that they were very happy with their purchase. But most importantly, several of them came back to make repeat purchases. And that, to me, is the asset test, right? It's, it's one thing to like your product. It's another thing to like it enough to buy it again. And they were giving away these products as gifts. So that is, uh, that's how I gained the confidence to introduce a full line and now to try to market and promote this on a, on a more, you know, national level um, using, you know, social media primarily um, and also uh, talking to people like you, Don. Uh, how, how are you financing it? Are you financing this yourself? Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I, everything that I saved um, from my years in consulting um, has gone into this business. I am uh, financing it partly through sales of my first year and uh, through a very understanding husband as well, <laughs> who helps fill in the <laughs> gaps. <laughs> yeah, That's the case. Rahini yeah. Khan, uh, it's been a pleasure. We want you to come back uh, I would next love to. fall and, and <laughs> tell us how you're making out. I I would be happy to. 
Okay. Uh, You jumped off a cliff and hope somebody's building a a swimming pool before you land. (laughs) I'm trying to dig as fast as I can on my way down. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you again. Thank Uh, you so much for having me. Wait, wait, your website again, spell it out. It's www.blusalt.com. Thank you, Rahini, and like I say, we want to talk, talk to you next year. Sounds wonderful. Thanks again, Don. Bye. Our next guest is Brandon Levy. Hello. Brandon, are you on the phone? I am. Can you hear me? Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Brandon. Brandon, you're here to talk about preparing for the holiday season, and I feel it's almost too late. But um, uh, first, we always ask our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves personally before we get into anything else. So the floor is yours. Sounds good. See, my background originally was in electrical engineering, and while I was working for a laboratory, Uh, In the East Bay in California, I had started two small businesses. One was a sustainable clothing business, and one was a small mobile accessories business that got started from a conversation after meeting a guy on an airplane on Christmas Eve 2007. And it was while running those two businesses that really illuminated the need for Stitch or what it is that I do. So my background is much more technical and engineering. I happen to have a passion for building physical products and things that make people's lives easier, and now spend um, you know, all my time working on our software, uh, which essentially does that for the businesses like the ones that I used to have. Now, and the name of your company is Stitch Labs. But Correct. How do you prepare for the holiday season? How do we prepare, or how do we think about our customers in terms of their preparation? Your Either way. Either way. Um well, it's a little bit different. So our our customers are um, businesses just like the previous guests that you have. Um, and we are a software company that helps those businesses. So for us, the way that we prepare internally is we make sure that we can handle the scale that our customers are going to be selling at. Everyone's orders are going to go up. Everyone's tensions and stress levels will go up. Everyone has higher expectations of being able to ship goods to their customers faster in a more efficient and effective manner. And we like to do as much as we can to cross our T's and dot our I's to make sure that everything will go seamlessly and smoothly for the people that are using Stitch. And for our customers, we work in in a different way in that for them, we try to prepare with them by helping give them good tools, tips, and ideas of how they can be best prepared and best handle the holiday season to make sure that they sell as much of their product that they can and also keep their customers very happy during those processes. Well, as I understand it, you're really the back end for a lot of people who are selling products online. Am I correct? Correct, correct. At at our core, we are what we consider a small-scale ERP solution, and it keeps getting more and more advanced. Um, we handle a lot of the supply chain management in terms of sales orders and purchase orders and transfer orders and warehousing, customers, suppliers, reports, users, a whole bunch of other tools. And then on top of that, we have an automation layer. And what that enables us to do is think about what, what we want to build, which is what, a, what we call a commerce automation platform. So the backbone is the business ERP but we automate the way that people sell and that if they're selling simultaneously on Amazon, on eBay, on a shopping cart like Shopify or Big Commerce, we link all of those components together and in real time are making sure that they're all in sync with each other and aggregating all of that information. Well, each holiday season, it seems that we have, we break records for online sales. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, but uh, what, what have you seen as some of the problems that particularly small businesses run into as, as they hit into this holiday season? The biggest problem that we see small businesses running into is uh, insufficient or ill-prepared inventory management and inventory planning. So we see a bit of both. You know, for example, 
people more often than not are under allocating inventory, meaning they are not thinking about how their sales are going to increase, about how they're going to spend their marketing dollars to help drive a lot more of their sales. But keeping in mind that in order for any of those sales to happen, they actually have the, the products to send out to their customers. And with poor planning in those regards, it's going to have a big impact in terms of decreasing their revenue through the holiday season because they just have run out of stock of things or over allocating their inventory and expecting certain things to happen uh, much larger than they really will or do in reality. And then they're stuck with all of the stock at the end of the year. Um, so I would say that is the number one issue that we see. And a big reason why I consider that the number one for small businesses is these businesses will spend anywhere from 50 to 90% of their money on the products that they sell, not on their marketing, not on their employees, not in their office spaces, but on those products. And if you're going to drive less revenue or more revenue, it's mostly going to be from the cost or the expenses that you have along the lines of those products. So if you make a mistake there, the compounded impact of everything down the line is much greater than any other part of the process. Well, how do you help them or how uh, how do they help themselves figure out uh, this balance? In a, in a variety of different ways. So some of, a lot of it comes down to um, the reporting, but what's important is we like to say we take a holistic approach to commerce. So part of what makes it really challenging for these businesses today, especially the small business, is consumers want those businesses to be selling everywhere. So, for example, your previous guest, I'm guessing that her consumer of her purses wants to buy from him on their shopping cart, wants to buy from them on Amazon, wants to buy from them in a brick-and-mortar store, anywhere. So she needs to make sure that her products are sold everywhere. Once they're sold everywhere, keeping track of that is a nightmare. And it's almost impossible to figure out how much you've been selling over time and what you sold in the past. So for us, by aggregating all of that data into one spot and segmenting it out, we give people one view where they can see that. So it's just a lot easier to digest. But then when it comes to the actual more details in terms of the reports and analytics, there's additional functionality that we provide people where they can use Stitch to forecast what they will sell in the future. And then we also provide uh, resources in terms of um, the articles and the blog to give people insights of, this is how much we expect things to grow. Like we're going to see um, almost $5 billion in commerce go through Stitch this year. We have a lot of data to tell people this is how much we think their product is going to sell more or less. And so through all of those means, using their data through the aggregation, using their data for forecasting, and using an aggregate data set to help people understand trends, we give them the, uh, some of the tools that they can use to help make those predictions. I'm sorry, there's somebody persistently trying to reach me, and I can't find my other phone to tell them to stop. But uh, <laughs> that's, you know, it's fascinating. Uh, last year, a lot of small merchants said that they had run out of uh, product, and uh, they really never gave a full explanation of why. Um, how do, you, how do you help them figure it out? You know, a lot of it I think it's down to the first half of the previous answer. It, it's putting everything under one roof. And, you know, myself as formerly having two small businesses that sold products, it was easy in hindsight looking back on where, where do we fall short? Where did we not see what was happening? And I would chalk a lot of it up to, one small business owner or a small business of 5, 10, 25 employees is selling the same product in 3, 10, 12 different ways sometimes, all at the same time. And they're not just selling one product. They're selling 1,000 or 5,000 or 25,000 individual SKUs. There's no way that they can keep track of all of that and all those different sources. And when you run out, it's hard to say, oh, I was selling more of my blue shirt on Amazon, but I was selling a lot more of size smalls on Shopify, and I wholesaled a lot more of this particular fabric. There's no way you can figure that out. So for us, just I would say the first step of the whole thing is just getting it all under one roof so that it's easy to get a holistic screenshot of everything that's happening. And then from there, that's when you can start making a lot more decisions or being a lot more insightful about why certain things are happening in your business.
Well, looking at this coming holiday season, do, do you think that we're going to break records again? Absolutely. I think when we look at overall in terms of the global economy as well as the U.S. economy, when we look to, you know, Amazon is an excellent proxy for how much additional volume they're selling just through Amazon, but also through their third-party sellers, which they the third-party sellers sell roughly half of what Amazon sells. Half of the GMV comes from them. Everything is trending upwards. And in terms of even what we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of people sell a lot more. And we're seeing some incredible cases where customers have been able to go from 10 to 50 orders a month to 10 to uh, 15,000 orders a month just in the last year alone. And everything looks like it's increasing as we get to the upcoming holidays. And I would certainly expect things to start to increase about middle of October. And then we see the biggest changes in overall sales volume between about November 20th and December 15th. That's that's interesting information. Uh, a lot of studies have been trying to figure out what what, what will happen this year. Um, uh, let me go sideways. Do you think it's better for a, a small business to be uh, have a higher inventory or or to try to pinpoint the inventory? When you say higher, do you mean quantity of units they have available or number of individual yes, yes. variants of their product? Well, everybody tries to figure out what will be the hot seller, and uh, oftentimes we're, we're wrong. These are I Yeah. How can you help f- figure some of that out? Can you, can you, for instance, be looking across uh, 10 or 15 clients and seeing things? And do you provide kind of a uh, an advanced look for them? That's something that we do on a, on a point-by-point basis right now, and we plan to offer a lot more functionality around that into the future. But, yes, that would, that would play a, a big role in terms of helping people is being able to look at, okay, here are 10 or 20 or 500 or 5,000 businesses like mine, and, you know, without naming any of them specifically, but looking at averages and medians of their sales, we can get a lot of insight in terms of um, where they're selling and how they're selling and rates of their sales to help our customers out. But even still, even with all of that external data, there's still a ton of insight to be, um, uh, to be, to be gained from just their own data. And that's what I think is important is, oftentimes one's data is very messy and convoluted, and by putting it into one place, it makes it a lot easier to understand and analyze. Um, so I think it's a combination of both of those. Well, what about returns? Often, I've been told that oftentimes when you start to see um, quick returns, uh, it's sometimes uh, uh, highlights a potential problem. Do you look at that? When you see quick, uh, what do you mean by quick return? Well, uh, all of a sudden, uh, products are returning to you. <clears throat> you. You sell products, and all of a sudden, uh, one particular product has a lot of returns. Uh, can you identify that, and do people uh, realize there might be something wrong with the product? We, let's see... We would be able to identify that with uh, some of the returns reports that we have or some of the custom reporting features that we offer within the tool. Um, in terms of understanding uh, you know, if there's one particular product that is causing a lot of returns or heartaches for people, um, it's, I don't think it's that simple um, of, a, of an answer. I, I think it requires a more advanced um, way of looking at it. Uh, for example, if you're a clothing business, I, it, it's less likely that you would say, oh, I'm getting a lot of returns of this particular style. It's more likely that you would say, oh, I'm getting a lot of returns of size medium, which is an indication that perhaps the style or the uh, the way in which you're cutting your garment for a size medium is generally too small or too big for the, purchase, for the, the uh, customer that's purchasing it. If it's more for like aesthetic things in terms of the way that the fabric feels or 
um, you know, let's say it's a candle, the way that the candle smells, things of that sort. Um, I think you can look to return trending, but to me that falls a lot more in terms of being in touch with your customer and the customer support to understand what it is that's going wrong with these products or why. But on a more macro level within inside the business, I think you have to look more not to the individual product trends, but you need to look to the attribute of that product. So are the sizes incorrect or are the shapes incorrect of these particular things? There's a persistent person trying to reach me. And I'm going to hold off a second and I ask you another question, then I'm going to mute my mic. But the question is, how do you, how do you help uh, retailers or other people decide um, what the mix of their products should be? There, this also comes into the reporting side. So what's important is, one, is to look at all of the ways that you can sell and break that out um, by those attributes that we talked about before. So if it is a garment business, be able to say, oh, okay, 35% of my sales are size medium, 23% of my sales are size large. Or if you're a company that you offer your product in different scents or different colors, being able to look at that as well. But then what's also important is to look at those breakdowns on a per-channel basis. So, for example, we have customers that they'll sell a lot of the color red or color blue of a particular product. That may account for 30% of their sales in aggregate. But in their wholesale channels where they're selling to other stores, that may actually be 50% versus in their channels where it's just on their own shopping cart or on a marketplace, it may be the minority. And so I, I think it's a, the, it's a combination of looking at those things. So what you can do as you plan into the future is say, oh, I expect my sales on blank channel, let's say Amazon, to increase by 100%. And I expect my sales, my wholesale channel, to increase by 20%. And I know that of those on my wholesale channel, half are of a certain color. And I know on my Amazon channel, 30% are of a certain color. You have the tools to calculate more specifically as you introduce new product, how many of a particular size should I sell or how much of a particular color should I sell. Um, so those will have a big impact on your ability to decide when you talk about product mix or product breakdown, you can look at how your products have broken down historically to figure out what ratios of each of those things you should be buying in the future. You know, if I if I had an online system, I think I'd uh, tomorrow morning I'd sign up for your service. Oh, thank thank uh, you. I, yeah, it's, um, we we're continually adding more new features and more functionality. And today we had a number of um, launches around Amazon of making it a lot easier for people to sell on Amazon and qualify so that their products can be sold as Prime. Well, um, if people want to reach you and your company, how do they do it? The best thing is to go to the website. So it's Stitch Labs, S-T-I-T-C-H-L-A-B-S dot com. And from there, everyone is able to sign up for a free trial. And from there, um, we can help you get set up. So we have a number of people that help people get set up and onboarded. And we also have an award-winning support team that can help people as well. Well, how did you come up with the name Stitch Labs? I'm, I was curious about that. Stitch, uh, both both part of it are double entendre. Stitch came from when I had a clothing business myself, but also it was the idea of um, stitching together these disparate components of a business, like the order management and the inventory management and the customer management. For small businesses, those are really messy things to deal with, and we want to bring them all under one roof. The lab side of it is one I was working for a national laboratory at the time. Uh, but on the other side, I think of running a small business a lot like a laboratory. It's a lot of experiments. You don't know what's going to be right. You don't have a lot of data sometimes to make a decision. And, you know, you have to try. You have to experiment. And so our, one of our goals with Stitch Labs is that as we improve our functionality, as we release new tools, as we help automate more of the business, we should hopefully take a lot of the guesswork out and we become the lab and you can function a lot more as a business owner making smart decisions. 
Uh, Brandon, I'd like you to come back after the first after the holiday season and talk about what we learned from uh, from it. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, I'm. Uh, I think this is going to be one of the most crucial holiday seasons because it's going to tell whether we've really pulled out of the recession or not. And I'd like. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, absolutely. And then we'll know a lot more after the season as well in terms of how things really played out. So that will be great. Well, look forward to it, Brandon. And thank you so much for being with yeah, us thank tonight. You. Really appreciate it as well. I learned a lot. I hope our audience did as well. <laughs> Me too. Have a nice night. You too. Bye-bye. Our next guest. Our next guest is Tim Dehan. Dehan, am I pronouncing it right? <clears throat> yes, Tim. Yes. How yes. are you? Uh, good, thanks. I'm glad, I'm glad you finally met it. You were the person that was calling us earlier, and I'm glad you you made the program. Sorry, uh, I gave you the wrong number. But uh, no, no problem. Pre- Thank you for inviting me. You're president of Actionable Intelligence Technologies. And uh, you, you have a fascinating article, which I just published on smallbusinessdigestmag.com this afternoon. Uh, people can read it there. But uh, I'm glad you came here to talk about white-collar crime in America. It's a subject people haven't talked about in a long time. And when I saw your story, I, I was so happy to have you come on board. Welcome, Welcome to the program. Thank you, Don. I appreciate the invite. Well, uh, we always ask our guests first, Tim, to tell us a little bit about themselves personally before we get into anything else. Sure. I was in the Navy for uh, 22 years, and um, that's, uh, believe it or not, got me into the fraud uh, side of things. Um, I was supporting uh, counter-drug operations in the uh, Caribbean and uh, so forth. And um, and that got me involved with uh, the uh, Drug Enforcement Administration and other agencies uh, and uh, putting together intelligence. And, and that one thing led to another, and, and we ended up uh, uh, supporting the intelligence mission for uh, money laundering, so international money laundering cases. And one thing led to another. We ended up uh, seeing a need to develop money laundering detection software. That developed into a what we call now a financial investigation uh, software or a comprehensive financial investigative solution. So roundabout way to get there, but that's how I got into the white collar crime and other financial frauds. Wow, that's interesting. We ha- haven't had anybody on a program like you. We should be asking you a lot of uh, other questions. But well, let's talk about white collar crime and uh, how it affects uh, American businesses and particularly small businesses. Sure. Well, there's a lot of estimates. For example, the uh, one of the national estimates is 300 to 600 billion domestically. Um, but when, and that that of course is going to uh, raise the price of uh, goods for everybody, um, the consumer and the small retailer who has less margin to work with. But it's it's much more invasive than that. For example, in Florida alone, uh, the the Flor- Florida um, Agency of Regulation estimated that. 80% of adults over 40 years old have been approached to participate in some types of fraud scheme. So if you think about 80% of uh, people over 40 in the state of Florida, um, that, that's an overwhelming number of people that are being solicited to commit fraud. And, and what they're typically looking at is to open up a bank account or open up, uh, pretend they're, they're uh, cl- uh, clients or um, patients of a doctor so they could run medical frauds or insurance frauds or any number of frauds. So the, the, the white-collar crime doesn't get a, um, a lot of press because it's big numbers. You hear these numbers, $300 billion. What are we going to do with $300 billion, um, $600 billion? Um, Typical person, what's the difference? But they're invasive, and they're raising all the costs of uh, medical, uh, insurance, and, of course, uh, theft in, uh, in every as- aspect of the, uh, every sector. Another another measurement, if you would, or at least an indicator, maybe it's not a measurement, is the uh, there was a case 2012 
Loretta Lynch, who's now the Attorney General, she had uh, prosecuted uh, HSBC, and they, they agreed on a uh, deferred prosecution agreement for allowing um, $200 trillion, it's trillion with a T, to move through their accounts. So it was a subset of their accounts, and it was a subset of the money they moved. And they had moved $200 trillion for people uh, overseas and, and fas- helped facilitate the money laundering. So not only is that in itself a, a criminal act, you know, to uh, launder the money or to help facilitate it, but all that laundered money is 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 from a predicate crime. So it's either from tax evasion, from high net worth people, or it's from other types of uh, criminal activities: drugs, narcotics, um, embezzlements, uh, securities frauds. You name it. <clears throat> people gain that money illicitly. Now they have to uh, launder it, move it around overseas, bring it back so they could spend it and benefit from it. But when you look at $200 trillion, is another number. It doesn't mean anything to anybody. But the, the, the world's, the global GDP is $87 trillion. So if one super global bank can push $200 trillion, three times the world's GDP, and they did that in a three-year time frame, if they can move that much money for people who have a need to avoid scrutiny, it's essentially the fraud problem in, in the world, domestically as well as internationally, is unmeasurable, if you would. So that's really the scope of what we're looking at. Hmm. Well, can we bring it down to a more uh, micro level? And uh, our audience is small businesses, 59% of whom, according to our surveys, are presidents and or uh, owners. What do they face in terms of white-collar crime? What are some of the common ways people rip off uh, companies? Well, the always the present uh, danger is uh, internal uh, people, of course. Uh, anyone who's got access to the books and records, anyone who has the privilege to write a check or process uh, some payments. Uh, then you've got internal folks that can embezzle the money. They can filter a few dollars off uh, every item that goes out the door. They could double bill. They could come up with any number of schemes. Uh, they could run false um, reimbursements. Uh, they could divert payments. So, in other words, if you if you're normally paying a supplier, ABC Corporation, they could put a few more extra additional payments through over the course of a year. So, you could be looking at uh, thousands of dollars without too much trouble. And and the problem is that most most businesses, small businesses, they don't have that margin. So, if they lose ten, twenty, thirty, fifty thousand, that could easily put them out of business and put them in extremis at a minimum. So, there's a lot of uh, potential problems, uh, even for the small business. And typically the small business is not is not going to have um, uh, cross-checks with uh, the accounting personnel by bringing in a forensic accounting team to do a due diligence or, or to, audit, to audit the books independently necessarily. So the, again, the, the small business is under the gun because they've got less resources to protect themselves. Well, so what can they do? For, well, what can they do um, to protect themselves? Uh, they really need to, um, you know, have a, uh, a vigilant stance. In other words, there are some some basic things that, if you look at the, uh, uh, the certified fraud examiner's website, and there's a lot of basic things on, on what to do, what not to do, in terms of um, uh, a business operation, how to look at employees, and how to make sure that you're you've uh, checked all those boxes, that you've done a due diligence on the people you're you're hiring. Um, in addition to that, I, I strongly recommend that they do, um, if one, if they ever get an indication that maybe something's not right, they need to bring someone independent in, bring in an independent forensic accountant. doesn't have to be terribly expensive, um, but come in and have a test. Come in and do a due diligence. Um, have the person who, with that kind of training, that kind of skill set, uh, have access to all the books. And that's the key thing is um, in the in the. In going back to the 1980s, uh, Larry Crumbly is a pr- professor at uh, Louisiana State University. He's a forensic accounting uh, expert. And he wrote in his textbook, really, um, in the beginning of the 1980s, the volume of transactions increased so dramatically across businesses that the accounting firms in their audits had to come up with statistical sampling methodologies. They had to test data. They could not, they were too expensive. They could not look at every transaction. And that's where accounting personnel if they were going to be unscrupulous that gave them a window and that's what gave us the worldcom and enron and these other major fiascos was that the accounting personnel knew 
what the audit team was going to do. And as they got more senior in the organization, they were able to control what the audit team was given to look at. So that's the, that's the bugaboo right there. If you're a management, a senior executive, you're the president, you're owner of a company, you're a board of director, you want to make sure that periodically you can bring in a trusted uh, forensic accountant person who has that skill set and give that person access to all the books and records, bar none, so they, they can go and look and test uh, as they feel they need to. One of the things our, our technology can help is, is if it is a large set of data, you could set it up and, and read it efficiently, very quickly. You could analyze a lot of records. But even without the technology, it's the, it's the unannounced um, full, full inspection. Um, they, they, you, the forensic accounting person needs to have access to anything they ask for. And, and typically someone in that field is going to know where to look generally. And uh, if they start to see indications that aren't quite right, then that's, they come back to the owner and they say, here's what we're seeing. We're seeing some indications. And that's when the owner needs to seriously consider uh, engaging uh, for a more robust investigation to see what's going on. But that's, that's the, the primary thing, is, is be unannounced, <clears throat> be, um, be unpredictable in, ter- in terms of timeline. You can't advertise this ahead of time. They have to walk in. They have to be given records, access, uh, carte blanche to be effective. Well, what do you do with the trusted bookkeeper that somehow we see case after case of a trusted Mm, bookkeeper or someone else uh, literally stealing thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars? Uh, I often wonder, how could someone not know that? Well, that's and that's the example is that a lot of folks would be um, embarrassed to tell that trusted bookkeeper, been there for so many years, they don't want to insult the person, so they end up taking no action, even though they might have some indications. They're wondering, they're scratching their head. Gee, I thought we had a better quarter. How come? How come we're so tight? So, what they'd want to do, obvious, it's easier in the beginning when you say, "Here's how we operate here. We bring in periodically uh, some audit people, and they'll do periodic audits. So be be prepared for that." Uh, but once the person's in your organization for five years or ten years, and you don't want to insult them. You've got to find a way to say, I've got to uh, meet standards with the, um, you know, our due diligence for the board of directors or whatever process, and say, uh, I've got, we're going to bring in some forensic accounting personnel, and we're going to we're going to test so we can uh, we can make sure to our shareholders or whoever's involved that we're we're doing the proper due diligence and uh, we're not going to have any problems with fraud or any kind of issues like that. It's it's uh it's sensitive. It's hard to do. Um, when you have to stare at a person across the table and tell them you, you basically you're going to test them and make sure that uh, they're not stealing from you. It's an awkward situation. However, talking to folks like this, the, the, the good bookkeepers, the good accountants, they're going to want that. So then they're not going to reject the, the approach. They're, not, they're going to say, good, I'll, I'll make it all available, because obviously if you're clean and you're not doing anything improper, then you're, you're happy to bring in a... Uh, a person to double check you because now the responsibility is is over the corporation. You've you've proven that you you've meet muster, you're ethical, you've done everything properly. So a, a, a top end uh, person is gonna is gonna be okay with that. Bringing it up and and putting it out there is is an awkward uh, thing to do. But that's the best defense is to make sure that you're anyone who touches the money, the books, the payments, anyone who has access to purchasing and, and could possibly get their hands in and. And, and do some um, improper pay- payments and so forth. Those people have to know that someday someone could walk in this office, and very well likely will walk in this office and ask to inspect everything. That's the defense for a small business because you don't really have to do that very often, and it doesn't have to be very expensive. The mere fact that they know that someday someone's going to walk in here, they're not going to try to steal because they know that most likely they're going to get caught then. And that helps you in a, in a situation where the person maybe is just in a jam personally. They're not a bad person per se. They they just were really um, upside down on, and they couldn't pay the mortgage, or they had some crisis at home, or whatever their problem was, and they they made that first uh, improper move. They they took that money for some reason, and, and that's a lot of these fraudsters end up that way. They they needed to pay a bill. They had a problem. They did this once, and then it was nothing happened. So they did it again, and then they did it again, and then they they refined things, and they they just kept doing it. And uh, you see that pattern a lot. But that's the defense for it. Is let's sh- make sure your accounting personnel know that at the drop of a hat, someone likely to come in here, likely to come in and, uh, and review everything. 
Well, you know, here in uh, New Jersey, the man who collected the quarters from the uh, from the uh, parking meters in uh, Ridgewood, New Jersey, uh, ended up stealing over a hundred thousand dollars in quarters, and no one caught wow. him. Wow! Wow! <laughs> you know, uh, you read about these stories all the time, and you just wonder. And see, that's that's the problem we're talking about is the the testing of the data. At at some point, you have to test all the data. You 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 have to go periodically and inspect. And and uh, in that case, you'd have to go check and see what the receipts were, and compare it historically, which shouldn't be too difficult. It all depends on how many. I forget how many years you said it took him, but still, it by quarters. That's got to take. Uh, he had to take a substantial percentage um, to to get to those kind of numbers. But but that's the same old story. Who 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 distrusts the parking meter guy? You know. <laughs> yeah, he's a nice man. You know, it's blown everybody's mind that he was able right. to do this for so long, and uh, <clears throat> and and obviously and there were no cross it. checks. Yeah. Right. I guess that's the real que- real thing. You should be questioning, not that you doubt their honesty, but you just have to uh, at some point question. And if I'm hearing you correctly, saying, uh, look, we're going to come in and just try it. And once you do it one time, it's going to keep people on their toes. Am I hearing you correctly? That's exactly it. And, and you got to, you know, just approach it from a professional point of view. And, and um, depending on the type of corporation, you know, you, you have obligations to somebody. If you're running the corporation, uh, even if it's just yourself. But if, you're, <clears throat> if you've got shareholders, you've got a board of directors, you've got employees, You've got you've got clients, you've got suppliers. You know, you've got an obligation to make sure you're not uh, going to run this business into the ground, no fault of your own, only because you were negligent and didn't watch for employee theft. That's that's that you, you have an obligation to not let that happen for all the other people or stakeholders. You know, you got a good viable business. You, you people want to keep their jobs. One person does this to you, and you lose your reputation. You might go out of business. Uh, your clients are going to be impacted by it. <clears throat> Certainly, investors or board members, and it, it's it's just the personal dynamics of being embarrassed to go to somebody, and you know that could be hard and have to tell them something very uncomfortable. Uh, essentially, you are going to come in and check the books and do an audit, and they just have to get preparation. Maybe they could talk to uh, a, a CPA firm and say, "This is what I'm considering doing. Do you have a way to?" for me to break the news to the accounting team. You know, I'm sure they have typical language um, and typical reasons why they could put forward that an accountant would have to honor, they'd have to acknowledge. The only person who's going to get really put out by this is the one who's not doing what they should be doing. And that, that would be a flag right there. You know, if you, if you bring this up and the person becomes irate, now you've got to do an investigation because you know this mm-hmm. problem. Very much so. Tim, the uh, yes. name of your company and how people can reach you? The company name is Actionable Intelligence Technologies, and you could look at us on the website. Um, that's A-I-T-C-F-I-S dot com. And um, like I said, we're, we specialize in the financial investigation technology, helping people do rapid <clears throat> investigative uh, processes and uh, and prevent the frauds and un- unravel the frauds and recover monies. Well, Tim, thank you for being with us. I, I, again, I learned a lot. I love this program because I get to learn a lot, and I get some very interesting yeah. people. And thank you for yes. joining us today. Well, it was very nice of you to invite me. Thank you, Don. Enjoy talking with you. Have a good, have a good day. You too. Thank you. Bye. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience add profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you like what you heard today, tell others about our efforts. If you would like to be a guest or suggest topics for future hours, email me at info at 
smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. We would also like to remind listeners that besides our radio efforts, Small Business Digest comes to you via the web, through our video channel, and in our magazine. You can subscribe for any or all of these by going to smallbusinessdigest.net. That's smallbusinessdigest.net. Thank you, and have a good day.